Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, and welcome to New Books in Russian and Eurasian Studies on the New Books Network. My name is Diana Dehanova, and I will be your host today. Today, I'm speaking with Dr. Klemena Antonova, who is an art historian and current research director at Eurasia and Global Dialogue at the Institute for Human Sciences in Vienna. We're discussing her 2020 monograph, Visual Thought in Russian Religious Philosophy, Pavel Florensky's Theory of the Icon. Dr. Antonova, welcome to the program, and thank you very much for joining me today. Thank you very much, uh, Diana, for inviting me and for showing interest in my book. Uh, I realize it's quite early on your side, so I appreciate that you're willing to start the day, you know, talking about religious philosophy and icon theory and so on. Uh, yeah, and I'll, I'll just mention for, for our listeners that this is also one of my areas of research. So I'm very, <laughs> it's one of the things I'd like to talk about early in the morning, for sure. <laughs> uh, so to start our conversation, can you just talk a little bit about your research background and kind of the origins of this project? Okay, uh, so in terms of my academic background, I'll just go very quickly through it. So I have a background in uh, English and American literature and then cultural studies from my native country, Bulgaria, uh, after which I went to the UK where I studied art history. So um, since graduating, uh, I've been moving around quite a lot, but I think that probably the position which I held, which is directly relevant to this project, and is therefore worth mentioning, is I worked for two years uh, with uh, Charles Taylor, one of the most influential philosophers nowadays. Uh, At the time, he was directing a project on religion and secularism at the Institute of Human Sciences in Vienna, and this is how I joined the Institute. And so I became part of this project uh, and I started working on Russian religious philosophy within this context. So um, this is more or less my academic career, which is uh, relevant to to this book. Uh, Now, I think that it might be also... um, relevant in some ways to explain how I discovered Florensky in the first place. Uh, I came across his work in the context of my research in art history. And I think that this is in a way very typical of the reception of Florensky in general among modern scholars. Because you see, for most of the Soviet period, he was almost completely forgotten as a thinker. And you first hear about Florensky in 1967, which is when uh, his article, Reverse Perspective, was published for the first time 
in uh, a very famous journal in uh, in Russia, which was uh, the journal of the so-called Tartu Moscow School of Semiotics, around people like Yuri Lotman, Boris Spensky, and so on. So it is within this context that um, the essay that Florensky had written originally in 1919, read um, in uh, 1920, but never actually published at the time, uh, first came out in the late 1960s. And I think that this largely explains why many people have become acquainted with Florensky mainly through his work on reverse perspective, because for many years, this was the only piece of writing that was really well known. And this is why he has been seen uh, among scholars up to, to this uh, days, someone who's working very much on issues of art history, and he's often even been described as an art historian. And you see, this sort of relates to my own approach to Florensky, because I think that this is wrong. You know, I think that he's not an art historian. His work he, uh, his work is not very useful for art historians. I think he's a religious philosopher who conceptualizes religious philosophical ideas through visual categories. So partly my book is about um, explaining what I found I, I find valuable about Florensky and his approach to uh, religious philosophy. And why I think that it is quite misleading to think about him just in the narrow category of um, art history. And, you know, as, as I mentioned, I think that his writings on the icon have some very valuable insights. But at the same time, for, for the purposes of an art historian, they're not particularly useful because... Um, Almost his all his categories, which are seen as art historical categories, are actually plain wrong or very misleading. You know, even simple things like, as we mentioned, reverse perspective. You know, it's neither reverse nor perspective. So uh, I think in this sense, it is actually uh, useful to see Florensky from this point of view that I'm suggesting as a philosopher who... Uh, explains, elaborates uh, his philosophy through categories such as image, icon, perspective, and so on, that we're used to coming across in art history, but in his writings, they're not really about art history. So this is, in short, my general approach. It's it's really interesting. I mean, for me as as a Slavist and somebody who's worked on Florensky really only as a religious philosopher, um, I remember some years ago I was working on some uh, panel about him as an uh, his iconolo iconology, uh, and I was talking to somebody from Saint Vladimir's Theological Seminary, and I was basically told that from the point of view of many uh, Russian Orthodox uh, theologians and clergy, that he is considered an art historian and that his philosophy of the icon is too secular. So it seems that he is kind of not accepted either either on the art history side or to a great degree on the theological side. Well, uh, I, I I can sort of understand where where this comes from. You know, I think that. 
I, I explained why I think it is misleading to think of him as a, a, an art historian. And actually, I think it's uh, it also means missing a lot of the main purpose of his uh, of his work and his project, because I think that his writings on the icon are part of a larger philosophical project. And if you don't see them within this larger context, you miss a lot of what is the main purpose of these writings. So in this sense, I don't think it, he's an art historian. Now, I think also that it is not quite right to describe him as a theologian, because I see a, dis- a difference between, a distinction between theology and religious philosophy. You see, what he does is, I think, religious philosophy, and especially a type of religious philosophy that is very much oriented towards um, grappling with the problems of modernity. And in this sense, I can understand why someone who is a theologian might describe his writings on the icon as secular. I don't think they're secular, but I think that they are part of a philosophy which addresses directly questions of modernity and questions of secularism. So I I can understand where this view comes from. I think, by the way, it's not true that his his whole position is secular. I think it is a religious position, but I think it is the position of a religious philosopher who is constantly engaged with modern secular philosophy in order to critique this philosophy, but he's also very much embedded within this philosophy. So this is where I think that, uh, you know, um, this is the reason why I think that he's been described so differently in uh, different uh, circles and people working in different fields. And you see, this is partly my point. My point is that Florensky was working on Various in various disciplines. So in a way, in order to understand the main idea behind his entire life project, his intellectual project, you have to be able to actually look at these fragmentary writings in mathematics, uh, art history, uh, philosophy, and so on, together across the field, because I think that, you know, one of the um, probably most popular views of Florensky is that he's a polymath, you know, he's someone who works in completely different fields. And it's very difficult for scholars like myself to uh, appreciate his entire output just because you lack knowledge in all the fields he was dealing with. So, but I think that this way of describing him as a polymath is actually, again, wrong. I would describe him actually as a monomath. I think he uh, draws material from different fields towards one philosophical project that he has, which actually uh, is focused on one main idea. And I think the main idea which he says many times in his personal writings is the problem of the symbol, but the symbol understood as the relationship between imminent and transcendent, man and God, subject and object, and so on. So I think that all his writings in mathematics, 
geometry, art history, and so on, a part of this larger project. And in this sense, I see him as a monomath, which is, you know, probably runs contrary to the general idea of Florensky, who is very often described as the La- Russian Leonardo, yeah. exactly in order to give this sense that he was someone who had an expertise in so many different fields. Yeah, I mean, I think the the Russian Leonardo kind of formulation might be a symptom of of this attempt to place Russian religious thought or Russian philosophy in general into more of a Western uh, kind of schema schema for for, um, people to understand it better. Well, uh, yes, I understand that. But, you know, at the same time, I think that, again, it's a type of uh, formulation that misses something about what lies at the heart of the whole Russian religious tradition. Absolutely. Because, uh, you know, I think that uh, it basically presents people like Florensky as exceptional and extraordinary geniuses, Mm -hmm. you know, brilliant, talented people, which they were. I think that Florensky certainly was an intellectual exceptional man, and everybody at his time, in his time, realized that. Uh, But I think that for me, it has been much more useful to see um, Florensky as a representative, a typical representative of a line, a movement in Russian religious philosophy. I see him as engaging in all the ideas that were typical and specific to this movement. And at the same time, what I think makes him special is that he engages with these questions that are common among people within this um, field of philosophy in Russia. But he does that through a consistent... um, use of visual categories. And you see, this is why I think that, you know, um, the way I conceived the book was not just based on my own fields of interest in art history and uh, religious philosophy, but I think that Florensky is uh, someone who stands out from a tradition of sort uh, in his engagement with visuality. And I think this is what makes him very special there. And I think that very likely one of his interesting uh, contributions and valuable contributions to um, thought nowadays and to a lot of our contemporary concerns, intellectual concerns, would be exactly through this very specific approach. So I think this would be a good time uh, to sort of uh, define his place in the large or talk a little bit about the Russian religious renaissance that he was a part of at the turn of the 20th century and sort of what was going on in Russian religious thought at the time and what was his journey within that? Well, uh, you know, let me see. I think that uh, the way that it makes sense for me to approach Florensky is to look back at developments in the 19th century, going back to the Slavophile philosophers, Homyakov and Kiryevsky, 
a lot of the ideas that I believe are central to uh, Florensky's writings, such as full unity, uh, the false oppositions that he identifies within uh, Western philosophy and so on, they go back to um, the Slavophiles. Now, after that, probably the major figure within this tradition of thought is Solovyov. Now, Florensky himself never acknowledges, I think, um, quite as much as he should, his debt to Solovyov. But I think that Solovyov is the major figure within this whole uh, tradition of thought. And then I think what makes specific the whole period at the very beginning of the 20th century that uh, Florensky belongs to is that you have these people who grow out of this 19th century uh, religious line of thought who um, write at a time when there is a religious renaissance, so a revival of Orthodox Christianity, which coincides with other extremely important developments, like, for example, the avant-garde. This is also the period of the avant-garde. And I think that what makes this tradition, the fin du siècle tradition, um, specific is both growing out of um, uh, trends within Russian philosophy that had been going on for some time. And this is a Russian philosophy that sees itself as the heir of an age-long Eastern Orthodox thought. So there is this on the one hand. And on the other hand, you have developments within the avant-garde. And I think that uh, these two um, sources actually interact in very interesting ways in the work of Florensky, but especially his work on uh, the, the theory of the icon, because it actually borrows ideas from both and puts them together in an interesting way. So the result is something that is very, very peculiar to Russian thought at the beginning of the 20th century, even though it touches on theme, themes and ideas that have a much, much longer history. Uh, now, in terms of uh, his kind of um, understanding of the icon, I think this would also be a good time to define a few other terms. So in the beginning, in the introduction of the book, you write that, this is a quote, our contemporary modernity can be characterized by two overlapping developments, the so-called religious turn and what has been called the pictorial turn. Um, so what are those two turns and how do they contextualize Florensky's uh, journey through these uh, kind of field? Okay. Well, I think this is actually something which is um, quite important. Uh, so on the one hand, the religious term is um, has to do with the idea that, you know, according to probably the prevalent view of modernity, modernity is seen as secular modernity. And... Uh, there's been for a long time the expectation that uh, religion will not probably disappear completely from life, but it would certainly 
a decrease in importance. This is what her thinkers had been expecting since the Enlightenment. Mm -hmm. And in this sense, it is, I, I think it is probably one of the most interesting trends I see in modern philosophy from my own perspective. Writings by people like, for example, Charles Taylor, Habermas, almost all the big names in philosophy have in some way engaged with the idea that this expectation of religion receding from the public sphere hasn't happened. Now, whether this is good or bad is another matter, but obviously religion still remains of fundamental importance for many people. It still informs many people's values, moral intuitions, and it shapes the lives of a lot of us. And in this sense, the whole idea of secular modernity and the opposition between secular and religion, religious reason has been questioned in the sense that, you know, thinkers have tried more and more to... Um, actually show that probably this opposition between faith and reason, religious and secular uh, thought, is actually too simplified and we should think about it in different ways because what we see around us obviously doesn't point uh, in this direction. So this is on the one hand um, uh, what, what the religious turn is about. Now, on the other hand, you have a completely different um, line of thought around the idea of what has been called the pictorial turn or the iconic turn. And it is it has to do with a very simple uh, observation that there is an abundance of visual images, which is important not so much in terms of quantity, that we're surrounded by visual images, but in terms of visual images are important for the ways we gain knowledge because of the media and so on. So these are a lot of recent developments that, uh, you know, we've seen in history before. It's not like people weren't using images before. But I think the whole idea, again, was that as we've been used to thinking about reason as you know, based on, in terms of what has been called before the linguistic term, that we reason through logical concepts. The notion that in the 21st century, visuality would be so important for the way we gain knowledge, for the way we use knowledge, for the way we manipulate or distort knowledge and all that, is quite, uh, I, I think, nowadays, because of technology, this happens in quite a unique way. So I think that this sort of idea of the importance of visuality on the one hand and religion on the other hand in modernity is something that scholars have been discuss, discussing, but these are scholars working in two completely separate fields. I think that it would be interesting to see of what happens when we bring these two academic traditions together. You know, philosophers who are working on the role of religion in modernity, mm -hmm. together with art historians, visual studies specialists, and so on, 
who are working on the pictorial term. And I think that nowadays this is not what is being done. So these are, they're very interesting writings, but there's hardly any crossover between what looks like two overlapping uh, developments in modern life. They happen at the same time, but at the same time, it is quite striking that they're hardly ever discussed together. So I think that in this sense, uh, Florensky and the tradition he belongs to is useful because I think he gives us an early example of how you think uh, about these problems in a unified way. There's a constant crossover in Florensky's work between religious concerns and concerns that are basically at heart visual concerns. So bringing them together is where, you know, something interesting can come out. So this is why I think, you know, my, let me just put this in a slightly different way. Uh, when I published my first book, which was um, a revision of my uh, PhD dissertation, I used Florensky, and I used very much the same writings I'm using in the current book. But at the same time, this first monograph was about something completely different. So I tried to see in what way we can understand what the icon meant to people at the time of its production in the Middle Ages, for example. This is why the subtitle of the book was Seeing the World with the Eyes of God. Now, in this book, I'm looking at probably very much the same material, but my interest is completely different. And this is why I ended up writing a completely different book. Uh, my interest is in what way this theory of the icon and this a line of Russian religious thought from the 19th century and the beginning of the 20th century, the way it's represented in um, Florensky's work, has a relevance to questions we are dealing with nowadays, questions in aesthetics, in philosophy, and so on. So um, I've basically tried to make the case, and I hope that you know, in the book I have succeeded, at least in part, in bringing across the idea, which for me is quite important, was quite important with this project, that the reason I'm looking at Florensky is not just because I'm interested in the uh, history of um, uh, cultural and intellectual thought in Russia at the beginning of the 20th century, I am, but this is not the purpose of the book. The purpose of the book is to show that this history has an actual uh, relevance nowadays and can help us answer some of the most important questions that we are looking at these days. You know, for example, the role of religion in modernity, um, the way that... Um, visuality is playing a bigger role? What is the connection between the two? The idea of uh, how fields of knowledge actually exist, coexist in a much more complicated relationship than the way we've been used to uh, putting things into uh, compartments and so on and so forth. And I think that 
one of the I don't want to take too much of the time just paying attention to that, but I just think that it is something important. Uh, I think we very often notice, I mean, scholars working on Russian thought notice that you read modern philosophy and you find interesting ideas that you are familiar with, which are presented and hailed as new and original. Yes. And you think, but... uh, these ideas are not these are not just things I've come across here and there in writings from the beginning of the 20th century in Russia. They are actually ideas that have been analyzed, debated in a Russian context for decades and decades and decades. Everyone within the Russian intellectual environment at the beginning of the 20th century was worried and concerned about the role of religion in a contemporary society. And, you know, there were the Marxists saying one thing, militant atheists, then there were religious philosophers, then there was the church with a much more conservative understanding and so on. And I think that these debates, which were very uh, intense, um, very well known among at least, you know, Uh, intellectuals at the time. I think that they're so prominent and it is quite amazing when you see that nowadays people are very much engaging with these same issues with no um, awareness that they had constituted such an important part of the Russian intellectual landscape at the beginning of the 20th century. I don't know if you agree with that. Absolutely. This is something I've come across as well. And, you know, I was thinking, at least within Slavic studies, and I think this is changing quite a bit, um, but there's been, uh, you know, I started my academic career in, you know, around 2007, sort of a master's degree. And um, I realized I was studying Russian religious thought, and I actually decided to pause my PhD and get a master's degree in Russian religious <laughs> or in uh, religious studies because I felt like I really needed to understand these theological categories and sort of Russian culture uh, as it worked as religious culture. And then I came back and did my uh, PhD in Slavic studies, and I found that until really the last couple of years, there was a resistance to taking sort of what was considered uh, the disciplinary tools of one field, which was religious studies, and trying to apply them to uh, uh, the Russian religious renaissance, even though from my vantage point, there was really no other way um, to, to give it a sort of full, full, uh, full view. Yes, yes. I think I find the same. But, you know, I also think that there's um, another aspect to all of that. And I think it has to do with the idea that you have um, a a religious philosophical project that people were engaging with in Russia from the 19th century well into the 1920s of the 20th century. And this religious project was very much conceived, explicitly conceived, as an alternative to the reigning Western tradition of philosophy, especially philosophy growing out of the Enlightenment and the Kantian tradition. Now, I think that this project, which has a lot of valuable insights about it, and they deserve to be known. 
So this is partly what I'm trying to do, you know, make these insights and interesting, exciting ideas coming from Russian writings better known among Western scholars. But at the same time, I think it wouldn't be fair to say that once people become aware of um, Russian philosophy and once the, the main works are translated into Western languages, you see this philosophy would be able to supplant, to become a real alternative as the Russians went, meant it to be to the reigning Western paradigm of philosophy. Mm-hmm. And I think the reason for that is that this is a largely uncompleted, unfinished project. Yeah. So, and this is why I think that it deserves to be known, but I think in a way, you know, people like me and you who work on Russian religious philosophy um, very often feel marginalized because this is certainly not part of the mainstream of philosophy. People go to university, they study philosophy very happily without having any idea about the Russian tradition. So this is not uh, obviously a great thing for us. But I think that at the same time, we are in a privileged position because if you think of the whole Russian project as valuable and uh, useful in many ways, but as fundamentally not complete and in need of further development and completion, this is where, as a scholar, you might see your your role. Now, I'm not saying that I'm going to, to complete the, <laughs> the Russian project, but I think that there's certain things that each one of us can do. Like you look at certain ideas and how they fit in the whole. You work on your in your own way. You contribute to developing these ideas. So in this sense, you know, I think it's actually a great advantage to uh, be in a position where you're not just writing a history of philosophy. You know, you are actually writing a history of philosophy while at the same time having to further develop and clarify and elaborate this philosophy in certain ways because it was left in a fragmentary state. Mm -hmm. So um, I think that this is probably what made me interested in that. In a way, I would say that almost everyone who uh, works on the history of Russian philosophy is forced by the nature of his material to actually do something which is close to actually doing philosophy rather than just history of philosophy. Mm -hmm. Because all the concepts are not there in order to be able to to work with with this tradition. So it's not just about popularizing Russian philosophy to um, Western scholars. It's also very much about trying to see what's valuable about it what isn't? Because a lot of the things are probably not very useful or relevant nowadays, or they're, they're, they're wrong, you know. But you focus on the ideas that you think are useful, and then you have to work with these ideas. And this is what I find extremely, extremely exciting. It's difficult, but I also think it's um, intellectually uh, a very exciting project for all of us. 
That very much resonates with me. We were talking uh, before we started recording. I, I'm working on a monograph on Vasily Rosanov, who, if anyone who's listening is familiar, is you know an extremely controversial Russian thinker. So I certainly am not trying to suggest that we should live by his philosophy today. But a big part of my project was uh, sort of synthesizing and trying to explain and suggesting some ways in which his uh, thought might be applicable to some of the issues that are happening today, for example, in the Russian Orthodox Church. Um, so it's it's certainly sort of, a, I think, uh, the whole movement was kind of cut off. And there's, as you said, a lot of potential to continue a lot of these uh, projects that were that were started then now. Yeah. You know, I, I think in, in what you say, I think that there are two things which uh, I find of interest. You see, I think Rosanov and to, to some extent Florensky too, uh, a very good example of what I just mentioned. You know, I think mm-hmm. when you have a philosophy which deals with uh, concepts and terminology which is not fully developed, this always creates the danger of all sorts of interpretations coming out. And some of these interpretations can be actually extremely unpleasant. I mean, just think about the whole concept of siedinstva or full unity. You know, this is another way of saying totality. And, you know, with hindsight, everybody knows where totalitarian ideologies and regimes have led to. Now, I'm not saying that what the Russian tradition was about is the same thing. One of the reasons I didn't translate Seedinstva as total unity, which is one of the possible translations, is exactly because I wanted to avoid this connotation. At the same time, because the concept itself is not fully developed, uh, it has left ground and it gives ground itself for being interpreted in all sorts of different directions. And one of the directions could be what nowadays we call, you know, extreme right-wing or left-wing interpretations. And this is why, this is where uh, I'm coming to Rosanov and Florensky here. I think that some of their ideas are clearly not um, the sort of ideas that we would want to live by, like anti-Semitism, for example. But I think that these ideas are not completely accidental to the movement because I think that full unity makes it possible for such ideas to, to coexist with many other great, valuable ideas as well. So you see what I mean? I think that it is not just a matter of oh, they're concepts that are not developed, we we can develop them in interesting ways. I think if you are really serious about um, the contemporary relevance of Russian thought, you actually have to develop uh, and elaborate these concepts in constructive, meaningful, and useful ways, because otherwise you leave them in a state where they can be used for projects that most of us wouldn't like to be associated with. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Oh, absolutely. And, I, and for Rosanoff, that has certainly been, been the case, um, particularly in the last 20 years. 
Yeah, I think they had quite an interesting correspondence with Florence, yes. didn't they? Mm-hmm. Very much. With, uh, which is not very pleasant to read. <laughs> I think we should we should move to another topic now. But you know, I'm just trying to say that you know sometimes, um, of course, it is much easier to see views that um, you disagree with as being incidental to the thought of people that you admire as thinkers. But this is always the easy way out. You know, if you see so many people within a movement, within uh, Russian philosophy, who actually have uh, anti-Semitic views or very conservative views politically, nationalistic and xenophobic and so on. Now, obviously, there is a problem there. which doesn't mean that this philosophy is bad and we should uh, forget about it. It just means that it hasn't hasn't been developed yet in a way which can serve our purposes. This is what I'm saying. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. No, absolutely. I mean, as myself, a Jewish woman uh, from Russia who studies Rosanoff, I feel like I I kind of live in that tension and have been for about the last decade. Uh, Well, you know, I think... (laughs) Yes, for for all of us, you know, when you when you read these people, yes, you do come across things like, you know, I remember how uh, when I was reading about Florensky's life, how you know he had quite a high position during the early Bolshevik period, yep. and he basically never wanted to hire women because he was convinced that they obviously wouldn't be able to do any sort of intellectual work oh, yeah. because of their nature. Now, clearly, <laughs> I wouldn't agree with that. But, you know, this is not all that there is about Florence Kenrosono. There's so many other things that are valuable and useful and extremely interesting. And just one thing I'd like to uh, finish with. One of the things that I find fascinating about Florensky is that about so many of the things that he's wrong about, he's wrong about in an interesting way. You know, you can be wrong about in a superficial, stupid way, but his 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 ideas may, you know, even like in art history, uh, I look at some of his concepts there and I think, well, this is certainly not true. But at the same time, He's wrong in such an interesting way that he makes me think. He, he like opens a door for me to think about things which I never considered before. So I think this is what I find interesting about him because you see, he's not a systematic philosopher. A lot of his writings are fragmentary, but they're, you know, they're full of brilliant insights. And it's not just about being right or wrong. It is about thinking about things in such a fresh and innovative way that, you know, it opens like a whole new world. This is how uh, Florensky has worked for me. Um, actually, I also wanted to make sure we covered this one other thing. So we've talked about sort of his in- innovations um, and ways in which he was different, both from uh, mainstream Russian orthodoxy and uh, his fellow sort of milieu of Russian religious thinkers. Um, but what aspects of his thought were actually rooted in traditional uh, Eastern orthodoxy? For example, um, you spent some time in your book talking about his, the influence of St. Gregory Palamas. Uh, well, Palamas was certainly important, an important influence. It is, by the way, interesting to notice um, that 
when uh, Florensky was um, uh, writing uh, in the 1910s and the early 1920s, using borrowing ideas from Palamas, Palamas was actually not available to um, to, to Florensky or to any of the other people around him. At the same time, there was a big revival of uh, Palamite scholarship. It's an interesting thing to see that without having access directly to the texts, because they weren't part of the uh, ontology that was available at the time, uh, ideas, some of the main ideas of Palamas became extremely influential for generally the whole movement of the Rus of what we call uh, the Russian religious renaissance at the beginning of the 20th century. So this is just an aside. But I think that uh, you see with Florensky and with the whole movement that he belongs to, that they make obvious um, efforts to show, to demonstrate that their philosophy grows somehow naturally out of the tradition of Eastern Orthodox uh, theology. So this is always very explicit there. Uh, what is not as uh, clearly stated, and actually it is very often, I would say, even intentionally left in the background, is the very strong influence that uh, Florensky and uh, many of his colleagues had coming from a strand of Western philosophy, because you see they were actually reacting against one movement within Western philosophy, mainly associated with Kant and Enlightenment thought, but they were at the same time very close to another movement, which was itself very critical of Kantian and Enlightenment thought, like, for example, the German Romantics. Uh, Another source, which I think is, again, not always very, very clear with uh, uh, the Russians, is um, the extent to which they rely on themes that go back to ancient philosophy and especially uh, Plato and Neoplatonism. Mm -hmm. And this is where, as you mentioned, you know, um, the reaction of theologians, and especially people who are mainstream theologians, they're always very cautious when they use Florensky because he uh, has been so strongly influenced by pagan and Christian neo-Platonism. Uh, neo mm -hmm. And I think that, you know, I don't want to go into detail because this might become a bit boring, but I think all the problems that a theologian has with thinkers that uh, rely on Platonism and Neoplatonism uh, come across when you see people approaching uh, Florensky's uh, work from this point of view. Just to give you uh, one very short example, because I think it also has something to do with the material I'm working on. You know, Platonism is one of the main ideas underlining um, platonic philosophies, of course, the opposition between body and soul. So the body is something bad and the soul is something good that survives and so on. Now, this opposition between body and soul, the material and the spiritual, 
is exactly what the Russian philosophy of full unity was reacting against. It's one of the many false oppositions that the Russians saw in Western thought. So in other words, what I'm saying is that the Platonic and New Platonic heritage in Eastern Orthodox philosophy has been quite controversial. And from there, in Russian religious thought, uh, it has also proved quite problematic. And I just tried to give an example to see why this has uh, been the case. So I think there's this sort of long uh, tradition of thought from Plato, the Neoplatonists, the whole tradition of Eastern Orthodox uh, thought. And I think specifically with Florensky, he was, of course, because he was using all these visual categories. You can imagine that he... Uh, he, uh, he pays quite a lot of attention on the theology of the icon, you know, uh, John of Damascus, Theodore the Studite, and so on. Ideas of uh, uh, Gregory, Gregory Palamas in the, the 14th century that actually he draws visual uh, implications from. Ideas which in Palamas don't have anything to do with icons, visuality, and so on. Actually, Florensky uses them in a completely innovative way, which draws out uh, this sort of visual connotations. So, I, yeah, I think this is more or less the background. Mm-hmm. Um, and what sort of what? How did um, his fellow clergy and fellow kind of men of the church react to him vis-à-vis the way that his fellow members of the religious intelligentsia reacted to his ideas? Well. Uh, I think that this is actually a very good question uh, because uh, Florensky, as you know, is quite um, specific in this respect because you have quite a lot of the people within the movement that he belonged to who were religious philosophers uh, and obviously came to quite open conflicts with the Orthodox Church. As you know, Bulgakov, who was a personal friend of Florensky's, at one point it came to, I think he was actually excommunicated by the church. There was a big scandal there. So you have these religious philosophers who fully realized that they were coming up with ideas that would antagonize the religious establishment. Now, Florensky is quite specific because I think he belongs to exactly this group of religious thinkers. While at the same time, he was a priest and he, for him, being a priest was a very important part and aspect of his identity. Now, a lot of his ideas, I think, are actually ideas that the church had reacted against, some of them were actually declared uh, heretical by the church. So in this sense, if you find Florensky's philosophy interesting and useful in some ways, if you find the whole movement that he belongs to of value, I think it is right to see this philosophy as actually developing outside the the channels provided by the church, not only outside, but very often in open confrontation with positions by the church. I just think that the Russian church at the time and now has 
stood for very conservative views, inflexible views that are almost impossible, or probably impossible, to um, agree with uh, many of the ideas of modernity that are actually, that lie at the heart of the project of modernity. So I think when you have uh, people like Florensky who wanted to provide construction, constructive solutions to modernity, rather than go back to ideas in the past and try to bring the past back, but actually engage with modernity as it is, uh, I think that it is unavoidable that they would do philosophy in a way which is very difficult to square with the official positions of the Russian church. And, you know, just to finish with that, just to be quite open about it, you know, I think that all the interesting religious philosophical ideas from um, what has been called the Russian religious uh, renaissance at the beginning of the 20th century come through channels outside the official church. Yeah, and uh, a document that is really interesting for this that I've spent a long, a lot of time with is uh, the proceedings of the Religious Philosophical Society, of course, uh, which have not yet been translated into English. But I think that's a really good kind of look at the way that you know some clergy were at least trying to meet these thinkers halfway, and yet there was a certain orthodoxy, both big O and small O orthodoxy, that th these lines just couldn't be crossed. Yes, yes. Well, yes, I think so. Uh, and, you know, probably uh, what would be what I've been quite interested in in this context is, as you know, there was this um, sabor, uh, how do you call that, church council in uh, 1918. And yeah, it, I think it was actually a, a very interesting Example to the contrary of what I said, but you know, it is still an exception within the whole within the whole tradition of the way in which uh, you know uh, the, the official church has been contributing to these discussions. And you know, we don't know what could have come out of this uh, council because you know the Bolsheviks put an end to it. But I think you have there the grain of something that could have developed in interesting ways. You know, you have the council, which at the time I think could very well have been impossible in the Catholic world in the sense that you had a great um, number of the representatives of the council were actually lay people. So you had open discussions there over months on end between, you know, the clergy, lay people and so on, trying to come out with uh, answers to very uh, contemporary, important, urgent uh, questions. So I think that this was probably something which, well, it sounds quite interesting. It didn't go anywhere. I don't know how it would have developed. You know, uh, Bulgakov, someone who's very um, strongly influenced by Florensky, was one of the members of this council. So I think... You know, if it hadn't been for the revolution, I don't know how things would have gone. But as it is, I don't think that the church has been able to contribute in any ways which I find intellectually interesting and promising, just to be open about it. 
Um, so I think uh, we're close to the end of the, our time. So I was hoping um, you could talk a little bit about what you are working on now, what uh, projects might be coming up for you. Well, Diana, you know that when um, you finish with the dissertation or with the book, life looks quite exciting because you feel <laughs> that there's so many things you could start working on. And, exactly. you know, you think, oh, shall I do this or that? So I think that right now, because I finished my book not that long ago, I'm working on several different projects. And uh, I still want to see which will be my, my main focus of interest. But I just want to mention two to you, which I find I, I'm quite enthusiastic about right now. So um, some of my colleagues uh, in art history have decided to write a new book, a textbook on art history, um, which takes account of this new um you know, ideas about decolonizing uh, disciplines. And basically, they invited me to participate with bringing in my the material I work on from, you know, the beginning of the 20th century, writings on the icon, work that the avant-garde was doing on art history as examples of Nobody was using at the time, of course, the term decolonizing, but as examples of an open challenge to the Western way of doing art history, because this is what the Russians were doing. You know, on one level, the whole theory of the icon of Florensky was basically to say art history, which be belongs to aesthetics and to a Western, uh, to Western philosophy, is, uh, has failed to explain the problem of the icon. We need to challenge this uh, way of doing art history, deconstruct it, destabilize it, and come out with our own terms and concepts that are so much better at analyzing the icon. So he came up with reverse perspective and reverse time and the symbol in uh, a very specific uh, ancient sense of the word and so on. So this is one thing. In what ways um, writings on the icon by Florensky, but also by others from the beginning of the 20th century uh, can be um, useful to a decolonizing project nowadays. So this is one of the things um, I've, uh, I've been working on. And the other one, which is a collaborative project with two colleagues I have. One of them works on Islamic theology and the other one works on Jewish theology. So my idea is to bring in my interest in Eastern Orthodox theology and Russian religious philosophy. So we have um, a project which is um, in comparative religion and we would like to look at concepts of the self of identity in these three religions. And we want to, to discuss them critically against the Western idea of modern identity growing out exclusively from a Western tradition of thought. So these are, I think, the two projects. We'll see where they go. Really fascinating and really, I think, important, important timely work. 
Uh, so unfortunately, that is all the time we have. Uh, so we've been discussing visual thought in Russian religious philosophy, Pavel Florensky's Theory of the Icon by Dr. Klemena Antonova, which is now available from Rutledge. Dr. Antonova, thank you again for joining me today. This was a fascinating conversation. Thank you. Thank you very much. Thank you for your interest and for uh, the very pleasant way of conducting our discussion. Uh, and thank you to our listeners. Until next time, this is New Books in Russian and Eurasian Studies on the New Books Network.